Hi and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host Annabelle Collins and I'm joined by Nick Carding and Alison Moore. On this week's episode, an update on the saga of the government's 40 new hospitals programme and why eight of the flagship projects could be facing further delays. We'll also be talking more about the ongoing ambulance crisis in the NHS. But first, let's talk about the 40 new hospitals and bringing in you, Nick, um, a joint effort from from you and I this week. Could you first tell listeners what we have revealed? Yes. So we need to rewind to 2019 uh, when this programme was announced. So in October 2019, Matt Hancock uh, announced that the government was going to build these 40 new hospitals, he said. Uh, And he said that six of those hospitals would be uh, prioritised immediately, that they would be be ready to submit their plans and building could start very, very quickly. uh, And they would be finished by 2025. So that's all fine and good. Everyone's excited. Then, in the last sort of two, two and a half years since uh, that announcement was made, these six trusts have had their plans um, delayed uh, for various reasons that I can go into later on. But the nub of it is that they have essentially fallen down the pecking order um, because other projects have instead been prioritised. Now, that's been disappointing for those trusts, um, but they've sort of been told that oh, you will be getting your money, you know, you're going to be getting your new buildings. It will just happen a little bit later than planned. But what we're revealing today is that the trust, those trusts are now uh, very keen to start spending some more money on uh, plan, more planning costs, you know, more plans, more design services, more consultancy to really get uh, ready for uh, the construction phase, which sort of hopefully would be in the next couple of years. But the government has only given them a million pounds each this year to um, deliver all that preparatory work um, for for this year. And that one million falls way short of what the trusts themselves say is needed to to prepare properly for their projects. So just to give an example, um, we report on uh, source telling us from Epsom Hospitals, which is one of the the, the trusts involved, they uh, said they needed around eight million pounds this year to cover the costs of their planning, design, and some enabling work. But they're only getting this one million pounds, so they're only getting what twelve percent of what they actually need. And so there's a real fear at uh, Epsom and also some of the other trusts in this cohort that because they're getting so little money for their planning, um, the, the, the the planning is going to delay, uh, the planning will be delayed and therefore the project will be delayed as well, which will also mean cost spiralling. So that's um, the, the story that we're reporting. It's essentially that projects that are already delayed, having initially been told they were the priority, now face even further delays because they're not getting the the planning sort of costs covered by the government that they needed. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd be interested to hear how the Department of Health and Social Care responded to this. Do, have they accepted that um, these these trusts are not getting the money they originally promised? Uh, yeah, at the moment they've not confirmed the amount, one million, but I have it from several sources across these trusts that they are all getting one million and that's it for now. Um, there's a lot to be said about what the Department of Health 
is doing um, in terms of this program. And I should say that the, the program is kind of a joint venture, if you like, between the Department of Health and the Cabinet Office. And the joint venture itself is sort of known as the new hospitals program team, if you like. So it's sort of the leadership team comprises officials from DH and Cabinet Office. So they have as the reason that they have delayed these projects already quite substantially is that when the program launched um, there was lots of funding attached but it wasn't sort of allocated out to individual trusts yet so there was a lot of money to be spent but it hadn't been allocated and what they have done together I presume under some pressure from the Treasury is to include eight Preview eight projects that are happening already that were happening before this program was even announced. And so the, the NHP team have looked at that and said, okay, we need to actually prioritize finishing these other eight projects before we can start um, building the cohort of trusts that, that I'm talking about today. So that's one reason why, and I suppose that kind of makes sense because, you know, you I suppose if you're going to build new buildings, you sort of want to try and complete the buildings you've already got started before you actually move on to building new buildings. Um, but it's a bit unfortunate for trusts like Epsom and what, uh, West Hertfordshire and so on, which are in that cohort affected. Um, I think what's also frustrated the Pathfinder Trust, so that's the cohort we're talking about, Epsom, West Hertfordshire, Leeds, Leicester and so on, but the other frustrating thing is that um, the new hospitals leadership team have also now decided to also prioritise another cohort of projects um, which are smaller in scope and probably easier to deliver. So what's happened basically is the pathfinders have gone from being top of the priority list to third on the priority list and that's very frustrating for them but from the sort of DH and cabinet officer point of view it means that they are finishing or well, they're completing sort of projects that had already started. So that's, you know, kind of makes sense. And then they're also starting this new program with this, the somewhat smaller schemes, the easier schemes, the cheaper schemes um, to kind of get them done. And I think that there's also probably an element of political pressure applied there because then, you know, these schemes can be delivered quickly. It'll enable the government to say, oh, look, we've already delivered, you know, eight of these projects already, um, the programme's running well. So from their point of view, I can, there's, there's an argument that you can kind of understand why they've structured it in this way, but the, the worry among a lot of people uh, in, the, in the trusts that have been delayed and also the cohort that comes after that, the, the sort of, the worry is that this programme is going to get to sort of 2025, 26, and it won't have built any of the, the big new buildings yet. And there'll still be perhaps, you know, 25 of these to deliver in literally a four or five year time frame because the deadline that the government keeps parroting is 48 new hospitals by 2030. So there's a fear that if we don't start building these big hospitals soon, you might end up having to build them all right at the end, which is might not be feasible might not be feasible because of because of the the money and um yeah and also the lack of capacity in the construction sector so just mm. here yeah, can building firms actually deliver these big projects um because you know this is the government will uh, say i suppose quite rightly that this is sort of the biggest hospital building program for a long time um and it is not since the sort of noughties or the 90s with pfi have hospitals been built on the scale but there's a concern that actually the construction sector might just not have enough 
capacity to actually deliver what you know what the government wants so that that's uh, part of the, the fear as well and some of these projects have been um, hoped for for such a long time I know one of them um, University Hospitals of Leicester they've wanted to to get the money to start this work for for years for years mm. and years actually um, so I imagine that this kind of and this this latest delay um, they must be worried about the impact it will have on their ability to provide safe services um, to run a safer state as well it's not just the fact that it's um, you know it might cause problems further down the line it's like what's the impact now as well yeah absolutely and I mean another trust with a good example is West Hertfordshire Hospitals mm. Trust which I think have been trying to um, uh, reconfigure their estate in Watford literally for about 15 years uh, and these these sort of this project has been in the pipeline for literally the last 10 to 15 years uh, funnily enough it was Natalie Forrest who who leads the new hospitals program she was actually the chief exec of West Hearts I think back in I'm not quite sure on the day I think it was sort of the middle of the last decade um, so she's very familiar with with the Watford scheme and will know only too well the pain that they're feeling um, at these delays. And yeah, it does impact on services. You know, several of, of these schemes, um, you know, include probably bigger A&Es. And we all know the problems that A&Es are having at the moment in terms of just lack of space. Um, so it's very hard for trusts to really redesign their services without having newest new and bigger estates to, to do that to support that so um it, it's just a very frustrating process for everyone concerned the the hope is that um sort of by the end of this summer the treasury will approve the new hospital programs business case which is sort of a national business case which is needed to unlock around about two and a half to three billion pounds of spend over the next couple of years and what if that gets approved then there's, there might be a, a bit more money for the Pathfinder trusts to help with their planning. That's certainly what those trusts are pinning their hopes on because one million is absolutely not enough. Um, but then also it will free up the money to um, complete and so I'll start building some of these smaller schemes. I also complete the the eight projects that had um, that have already been sort of going on for quite a while. So it's a really important year for for this program um and they they need to get that business case approved so that the funding can start to flow much more into into the the trusts um that it has been up till now um, and as i said at the beginning this is obviously um the, the government's one of their flagship election promises so if there are if you know there's we we all, we all know there aren't going to be 40 new hospitals or 48 new hospitals but um if there aren't any new hospitals by or what you can you know possibly accept to be a new hospital um by the the, the tar by their their target date then that's surely going to have consequences or maybe I, I, I don't know maybe they don't care i, th I think you there's certainly a big fear in government it would have consequences because obviously a new hospital is sort of such a you know by nature it's a physical building it's very visual it's very kind of mm. you know if, you, if you've built 40 hospitals you can point to them quite easily and say look mm. at what we've done you know 
um people so will many see ribbons it. to be cut as well <laughs> exactly so yeah. many pictures um i suppose there's two things to say quickly so there's a lot of uh, sort of myths about is it 40 hospitals is it 48 new hospitals uh is it, is it no new hospitals are they all just bigger buildings <laughs> i'm helping to fuel those myths as well by <laughs> quoting both of them <laughs> yeah it is very confusing what we've also done as part of this story and we've also produced a video which i recommend that everyone goes onto our website to have a look at which hopefully breaks is down quite simply mm. what we've done is is go through each of the projects uh, and basically um looked at the plans and said is this a new hospital or is it actually a new hospital unit or a new you know like an a e or a, a cancer unit so um what we've found is that uh of the you know what's currently confirmed at the moment is that there are going to be 13 new hospitals so I, I would say projects that we can reasonably define as as new hospitals so 13 of those there are going to be two new expanded a and e's there are going to be uh five new treatment units so like cancer units or maternity units uh there are going to be six uh community hospital upgrades so that's obviously just upgrading much smaller hospitals um, and then there are 14 projects that haven't yet had their plans or funding confirmed we think they will be large projects you know probably akin to a new hospital but it hasn't been confirmed yet so we can't say for sure and then there are eight projects that haven't even been announced so at least with the 14 that i just talked about we know which trusts are involved with this last eight, um, we don't even know which trusts are involved or how big those projects will be. So we know into the, the answer to the question of how many new hospitals are being built. At the moment, the answer is at least 13. And in terms of like how many will be built overall, do you think the answer is, well, at least 13, but probably it'll be around 25 to 30. Uh, and the number of projects overall is 48. So you'd sort of say roughly 30 of 48 projects might constitute new hospitals but it will not be 48 so if the government tries to say we've built 48 new hospitals that is not the case not even 40 it's probably not the case either um so that's just something to bear in mind for for listeners who are um confused and i hope i hope that's clear because it's taken me a long time to get my head around it yes very helpful nick and i will link to the video in the notes this episode as it's a really great explainer and um, but, but before we move on to our next topic nick just final question from me what what can we expect to happen next with this yeah so um i think i partially answered to be fair uh, in the previous bit um so the bit the main thing is the business case that needs to be approved at national level um that will then allow uh the D, department of health and the new hospitals program team to start launching procurements much more for commercial partners to help um uh, trust build these these uh, buildings um i think in terms of like when does the first spade go in the ground uh i think the plan is to start uh in like february march next year on some of those smaller schemes that i mentioned um so obviously there's there's already spades in the ground at the eight schemes that have already started so they hopefully will be completed soon some of them um but yeah in terms of new sort of actual new buildings or units being built we think the sort of earliest that will actually start uh, construction will be early next year so the big sort of thing to look out for this year really is 
will the national business case get approved so that funding can flow um, and then hopefully early next year um, we'll get some actual spades in the grounds and in terms of the pathfinder cohort um, which the, the sort of six to eight trusts that we've talked about here that are very delayed they hopefully will be able to start their get the procurement sort of run next year and then spades go in the ground for their projects towards the end of 2023 or 2024 at the latest. Thanks very much Nick, um, that was super helpful to kind of untangle a really complicated, complicated <laughs> story but I think it's now time to talk about ambulances and bringing in Alison. Um, you um, published a story this week Alison about some data which revealed um, you know really truly how terrible the ambulance crisis is at the moment in the English NHS. Um, could you just take us through the story? Yes, I mean it's a very interesting story because we don't normally at this time of year get to any details at all about ambulance handover delays. Um, those run up until uh, the end of April in what's called the winter sits rep and then then die out. But we have been getting some additional um, data this year um, which has been released through the Association of Ambulances Chief Executives. And they have been looking at the longest waiters in each month. And in April, there was some poor person who waited 24 hours to be handed over at an A&E, which is just staggering. I mean, one, one feels for them, but I think one also feels for the ambulance staff who um, have to, to sit there and the ambulance staff are very, very skilled but they're not really just trained to look after people for that length of time. In addition there were 599 people who waited more than 10 hours and 11,000 who waited more than three hours. So we're really seeing a significant number of people each month who are waiting ridiculous lengths of times for, for, for handovers and this does, doesn't seem to be going down very quickly was a little better in April than in March, but only very marginally. So ambulance handover delays, of course, will have an impact on response times. Um, what sort of impact are, are you seeing, Alison? Well, we've seen some pretty horrendous response times this year, as I, I think we may have discussed before. Um, they were slightly better in March than they, uh, in April than they were in March. Uh, but we were still talking about 51 minutes on average for a category two patient to be reached. Those are people who've had suspected strokes, suspected heart attacks and a whole realm of other things. The target there is 18 minutes. So we're nearly three times that. Mm -hmm. um, looking at category one, which are the most serious um, patients. So those are people who've got cardiac arrest, or respiratory arrest or, or, or traumatic bleeding, they're meant to be reached in seven minutes and on average they're being reached in over nine. There's some significant regional um, variation within that and the region that I think people are really, really worried about at the moment is the southwest. Um, their performance is way below other regions and if you look at the performance at the, the 90th decile, which is um, means that more than 10% of patients wait longer than a particular time. They're still doing very, very badly. I was mm. talking to someone this morning who said how much concern there remains about the southwest and in particular the impact of the summer, because obviously of all the areas in the country, it's probably the one where the population rises most in the summer as tourists flood in for their holidays. And 
to be honest, if this is how the southwest is coping at the moment, so we'll, we may be looking at a pretty rough time over the summer. Do, do, can I ask, Alison, do you know off, off the top of your head, sort of, is do we know sort of why, because when I think about why this is sort of seems to have gone, gone downhill so fast, is it because the demand for ambulance services has gone up a lot, or is it because hospitals, hospital EDs, have just had a deterioration in their ability to take handovers because of you know covid infection prevention for example like do we know sort of which one of those it is or is it both or i i think it's to some extent it's a mixture of both but actually ambulance call outs haven't been particularly high no in the last few months but we have seen a decline in performance and we know that um, ambulance handover delays have a re very real impact on ambulance trust's ability to to get out into the community to respond mm. to other calls and we've had cases like in Shropshire where I think at various points over the last couple of months every ambulance in Shropshire has been sitting outside a hospital they're not on the road res responding to new calls they're mm. sitting outside a hospital with someone in the back who actually ought to be in the A&E. Mm. I mean it feels like yeah, it feels to me like the biggest change or the biggest reason why this deterioration has happened is because hospitals' ability to discharge or take patients from, yeah. from ambulances just has nosedived. And I wonder if um, that part of the reason why the Southwest is so bad right now and just sort of links back to what I was talking about, the new hospitals programme. Um, obviously, there are quite a few trusts in the Southwest that do have just physically very small EDs. Like um, I think Royal Cornwall mm. Hospital has quite a small one. Plymouth's is is very small. They've been crying out for a new A&E, a much bigger A&E for years. Um, and I think it's actually no coincidence that when you look at the number of trusts in the new hospitals programme, um, the, there's a very large number proportionally in the southwest. So for example, Royal Cornwall, University Hospitals Plymouth, uh, Northern Devon, Torbay and South Devon and Somerset Foundation Trust all in uh, all in the new hospitals programme and that maybe you know the, I guess that just suggests that those trusts do have particular A&E capacity yes. pressures which is partly why the southwest is so bad. Yes it may may well do so though I think a lot of A&Es have had capacity issues and have actually had a, mm -hmm. a fair amount of investment to create more cubicles to, to physically extend the the a and &E. I've certainly seen that in a number of places I cover in the the southeast mm. so I don't know if that investment which has generally happened over the last three to five years has not reached the southwest in some way mm. uh, but certainly That's possible yeah yeah I mean rural Cornwall has been mentioned a, a number of times having particular issues with capacity and it, they have at, at one point actually had a tented reception area is the only way to describe it really mm -hmm. uh, so I think people also called it a pod um, out in the, the the car park which is manned by ambulance staff and will take a small number of uh, patients until they're able to transfer them into the the main A&E which is a pretty awful situation isn't it mm. what, what really worries me about all of this is that I can't at the moment see what the plan is to get anywhere like back to that 18 minutes response time for category two obviously mm. we've, we've got something um vaguely similar similar in uh, elective care and we've got a big elective care recovery program I, i've not seen sight nor sound or, or heard that it is being drawn up 
anything around recovering ambulance um, response times and I can't see it happening quickly either. It feels a bit like just from having read some of your previous stories on this Alison that yeah there's not really much of a plan but NHS England have previously said haven't they you've got to fix this you've got to fix it now yeah and that seems to be as far as it goes there's never there's not been a you need to fix this now and here is really how you must try and do it but it so it just feels like yeah there is whereas with the elective recovery plan and you know all these trusts are coming up with these documents plans strategies etc but for handover it just feels like nothing is being really suggested beyond what's been tried already and mm. I don't know what else people trust can do. Yes well certainly the the October missive from NHS England which basically told them uh, that told trust they had to solve this immediately didn't come as far as I could see with any money at that point a bit more money was put in uh, subsequently but it was a list of ideas which had worked elsewhere and and in um a suggestion that trusts should take up those which they hadn't already tried um i think trust capacity to do radical things at the moment is probably quite limited um certainly in that time we were just going into the omicron um wave in in in, in the later part of the year and i think uh, the managers who would be able to deliver that sort of change were probably quite exhausted and were caught up with um, you know some very immediate issues around beds and so forth so I, I don't know that there's any immediate changes that trusts can make uh, people set have told me time and time again the problem here isn't so much within the trusts who are doing everything they can generally um, one or two exceptions if you listen to ambulance staff but never mind um, but it's the the other end of the hospital is getting people out who need to be either in social care, residential care or domiciliary home packages or perhaps in a community hospital bed. And until you can get those people out, then you can't move people out of A&E into beds and you can't move people out of the ambulance into A&E. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very big problem in that respect. And it's not one where I see much evidence that the government's putting in lots of money. Mm. I also wanted to ask Alison about the relationships between ambulance trusts and the acute trusts that they're they're working with. I was just reminded when you're talking of a, st a story I did a few weeks ago about um, it was West Midlands Ambulance Trust um, sort of making some quite strong comments about um, University Hospitals North Midlands and the Royal yeah. Stoke, um, which is slightly unusual. Um, and I just wonder whether it like how are they working together? Is there do you think there's a bit of animosity between? between ambulance trusts and acutes? I don't think there's massive animosity across much of the country. I think that there are probably individual areas where working relationships aren't all that they could be. Mm. Um, and I think West Midlands has been probably at the forefront of ambulance trusts in pointing out what the impact of handover delays has been. I mean, their, mm. their, their board meetings have been very, very clear that patients are being harmed in a way I'm not necessarily seeing in, in other board papers around the country. So I think mm, they, they yeah. realise that they have got quite severe problems there with a, a number of trusts and they are open about them. Mm, mm, which is good. Um, thanks very much, Alison. It was a great story. and I'll, I'll also link to that in the episode notes. Um, but it's time to wrap up the podcast this week. Thanks so much for listening. And just a reminder, we're available every week on the HSJ website and wherever you get your podcasts from. 
thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next week.